Amen. Thank you very much. That was a blessing. Amen. Amen. Jesus Christ is the lighthouse for every soul. While they were singing this morning, it's pointing you to Christ. Not only is he your lighthouse, but he's the anchor for your soul. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, he anchors you to him. Let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. First Peter chapter 3. Please look around. Your neighbor next to you doesn't have a Bible. Would you be kind enough to share your Bible with him? First Peter 3. And while you're turning there, I'd like you to put your finger in Isaiah chapter 38 as well. Thank you. Thank you very much, Brother Mrs. Russ and Brother Chamberlain. They will be singing again tonight as part of our special music. And I encourage you to be back here this evening at 515. We, uh, our service will be very, very special tonight. It's a sending off service for Brother and Mrs. Ted Mung. Brother Ted will be uh, sent out by our church. He'll be under the authority of Heritage Baptist Church and sent out from here to Hangzhou, China to start a church in sometime around mid-June or so. And so we'd like to ask you to be here for that. It'll be a very, very special time. And if you've never been to sending off service uh, type of uh, event, you need to come tonight just to have your heart encouraged by that. And uh, it's what local New Testament churches are all about, seeing people saved, getting them grounded in the Word of God and discipled, but from there, raising up leaders and sending men out to start churches. So I hope you'll be back there for tonight. First Peter chapter 3, let me read through that today. And we'll get you on your way as we look at the message today. As we continue our series on yours forever. Notice chapter 3, verse 1. Peter is continuing where he left off about midway through 1 Peter 2 on the subject of submission. And submission is something every Christian has a responsibility in. But I want you to see some thoughts he has to say here. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Likewise, ye wives... Be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corrupt, uh, corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Now notice verse 7, a very strong, strong word of counsel to the husbands. Likewise, ye husbands... Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. We're in a series, a short mini-series on the home, on the family, and marriage. And last week we started out by looking at a couple messages on marriage I'll refer to a little bit later on. But as we start the message, I'm reminded of a story about a, a mother who had a boy about five years old standing with her on a street corner. And as they were standing there, they happened to notice a wedding procession go by. And you know how wedding processions are. There's the lead car, and they have the cans behind it, and a sign that says just married on it. And uh, following those, this long procession of cars. And as they were doing so, they're all beeping their horns. They're going beep, 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 beep. You know how that goes. They're beeping their horns to let everybody know it's a wedding procession along the way. And the boy had never seen anything like this before. And he was looking at that with somewhat amazement. And he looks to his mother, and he says, Mama... Why are all the cars beeping their horns? It's so noisy. Why are all the cars beeping their horns? Mama said this, son, because there's a wedding going on. And the boy was a little perturbed. He said, Mama, but isn't a horn a warning signal? And the mother said, exactly, son, it's a warning signal. (laughs) Now, we're going to sound some horns this morning, amen? 
But not as a warning. If you're married, we want you to be happily married. Amen? But we're going to sound some horns this morning and toot some trumpets today. And we're going to get help on a message I've entitled, Order in the House. Now, don't raise your hand because this is not a democracy at this moment. This is a theocracy. Amen? Okay? But how many of you feel like today I need to change my husband? Ladies? Okay. How many husbands feel like you can't change your wife? You know? If you catch what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 7, it's going to help your home. Now, please don't do this. I, I said this last week, and I'm, I'm being a little facetious. Please, if I say something you kind of wake up and agree with, don't hit your husband or wife like this, okay? You can hit him upside the head, but don't go like this, okay? We're going to have fun this morning, but we need some counsel today. I want you to follow some things today. It'll help us very much. And then tonight, we'll be off the series tonight, but I'll be continuing next week and the week after for a few more messages on that will help us. Let's, let's go to prayer. Father, thank you this morning for Jesus. Thank you for his death on the cross for our sins. I'm thankful that the verses preceding chapter 3 remind us of a sinless Savior, of how Christ bare on his own self, he bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness by whose stripes you're healed. And tonight, Lord, this morning I come to you in recognizing that our Lord Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd and bishop of our souls. And this morning as we come to this service, as we've already been encouraged by the choir and by the congregational singing and by the, Lord, the, the special music that the Russ Trio gave today and encouraging our hearts about the Word of God standing forever and God's grace in our lives and, Lord, that the lighthouse is Jesus Christ. Now we enter into that very special moment where the Word of God is being opened into our hearts. Father, take away the scales from our eyes. Even as the psalmist prayed, open thou my eyes. That may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Father, cleanse us this morning from all filthiness of the flesh and superfluity of naughtiness that we may receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save souls. I pray this morning's service would be a changed moment, a transformational time in our lives. I pray that we'd approach God's word with humility and not with an evil heart of unbelief, but with a desire to be fed the word of God and be, uh, be shepherded in our souls. And Lord, to be responsive to what we hear today. Father, we come to you today realizing we want our marriages to be heaven on earth and we want our marriages to have happiness and homes and we want young people who are not married and singles who are not married to endeavor to have a biblical type marriage, a happy marriage and happy home. Father, pray you'd meet our needs today and as we look at this area and the subject of conflict today and how to resolve conflict, we pray that you'll give us great divine wisdom. Bless our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our series is entitled, Yours Forever. Last Sunday morning, we studied Matthew chapter 19 as our starting point and saw some advice the Lord Jesus Christ gave us. And I titled that, me that message, A Marriage Made in Heaven. Last Sunday night, we spent some time in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 31, and looking at the subject of the roles and of the husband and wife. And we, tied a, we call, entitled the message last Sunday night, Tying Up Loose Ends. This morning, I want to go a step further with, on some things we could, didn't have time to cover in Ephesians chapter 5 and go a little bit further and look at the subject of conflict in the home and how to have order in the home and what to do when you, have, when you come to a place where there's just disagreements and, and disharmony. What do you do in those situations? And bear in mind, every home has those situations at one time or another. 
And this morning as we look at the subject here, we are reminded today that God wants us to have homes that have orderliness. And as we look at the scriptures this morning, I remind you of what the Lord says in Psalms 127, verse 1. Except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain to build it. I remind you this morning that a house divided shall not stand. How many understand this morning, Satan doesn't want us to have happy homes, amen? How many understand today, Satan is the divider of the home. Satan wants to split your home. Satan wants you to have unhappiness in your home. But I want to tell you this morning, our Savior Jesus Christ wants you and I to have a wonderful home. I want you to see three things from our passage scripture this morning. Number one, which you consider in verse one, the marital risk. Peter, in writing to the church, these believers that are scattered about, we know that these are scattered believers. We know from chapter one, verse one, they're called the diaspora. The Bible says in chapter one, verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers, or if you would, or pilgrims scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. These are believers going through persecution, scattered out throughout various regions of the Middle Eastern area. Their lives are in upheaval. They're disheveled in their in, in things. And they've had to leave the churches that they were saved in and their families and their jobs and their businesses. And they had to relocate to different places. You might say that this was an immigration process happening with these believers. These believers found them in places, and, but there are things that their hearts were heavy. And you'll notice that all throughout First Peter, that the theme in First Peter is about the matter of holiness. And he reemphasizes in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, chapter 4 and chapter 5. As Peter's going through this, he's writing to believers who are facing what I would call dysfunctional issues. And one of those dysfunctional issues had to do with relationships that they had with the government and relationships they had with their employers and relationships they had with one another. I mean, understand today it could be a challenge working with people. Amen. It'd be a challenge going to work with somebody who's just not all together there at work. Or being seated at school with somebody that just seems to be a rebel rouser. But man, when you get it down, now he gets to chapter 3. He's dealing with the home. And you have to remember, as I mentioned last Sunday night, that, that these believers that he's writing to, many of them were married into pagan homes. Pagan idolatry, pagan traditions, pagan solutions. And I wish I could tell you this morning that the America that we live in today is a Christian nation. But I'm going to tell you this morning, when you look at the laws and the direction and leadership of our country, we are far from being a Christian nation. We have a lot of paganism in our world. When things that are, when Christ is not exalted and the Ten Commandments are being removed and, the, and, and, and other types of false religions are being elevated, there's something wrong with all that. Notice in chapter 3, verse 1, Peter says something to the homes and to the families. He says something to you and me. Likewise, you wives, being subjected to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word. Underline that. If any obey not the word. Homes where there's controversies. Homes where there, where there are conflicts. Homes where are, that are facing what I'm going to call point number one, marital risks. Reality is every home, Christian and non-Christian, faces the risk of rupture. We said last week in Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus had to tell those Pharisees, when he's explaining to them about marriage, he reinforced marriage by adding something that God did not have to bring up in Genesis chapter 2. 
He defines marriage. Therefore, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave or become one with his wife. And they too shall be one flesh. I mean, God's intention was that marriage, when it happened, that marriage would be permanent. But those men were, were advocates of divorce and they had approached Jesus, not about the principle of marriage, but about the about their trying to get Jesus to be on their side about divorce. And Jesus had to clarify some things. And he reinforced what Genesis 2.24 says by saying this in Matthew 19.4. He said, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Jesus was emphasizing the permanence of marriage, that you're married till death. And I want you to notice this morning that we are facing a time of frightening crisis. McKinley Law Firm reports about United States divorce statistics that many of us are familiar with on a cursory nature. But just for a moment, I want you to understand the frightening crisis, young person, what you're about to enter into when you get married. Some in our room who are saved and know the Lord is saved, but they've experienced the heartache of the word divorce. And I want you to consider with me for just a few moments if you're in a place where even divorce has even come up in your mind. I want you to consider some of the, the crisis we're facing. We do know that close to 50% of all marriage in the United States results in divorce. But would you listen to this? When you break it down, it's very startling. It's very frightening. 41% of first marriages end in divorce. 41%. 60% of second marriages end in divorce. 73% of third marriages and on end in divorce. It's very high statistics. If you're less than 30 years of age, your risk of divorce as a woman is 80%. Four out of five women risk being divorced if they're under age 30. If you're a man, if you're under age 30, the, pro the proximity is about 71 to 75% of the men risk being divorced the first time. In America, there's one divorce approximately every 36 seconds. That, that bothers my heart. There's 2,400 divorces per day, 16,800 divorces per week, 876,000 divorces per year. And that is only what is accounted for. The average length of marriage that ends in divorce is eight years. People wait an average of three years after divorce to remarry if they remarry at all. They say that if your parents are happily married, your risk of divorce decreases by 14%. Parents in the room and husbands and wives in the room, may I implore you this morning. Let's model biblical marriages to our family. Amen. Let's model marriages that we're going to stay in it and we're happy and we're going to. And, and by the way, as I said last week, God is concerned that we have a holy marriage before it becomes a happy marriage. If you have a holy marriage, you'll become a happy marriage. But if you have a happy marriage, it's not a guarantee you're going to have a holy marriage. And these statistics on divorce are very bothering because it reflects the fact, as we go back to chapter 1, there is some matter of disagreement, disunification going on in these homes. Barna Research Group measured divorce statistics by religion. Brother Russ, Brother Chamberlain, this bothers me. They found that 29% of Baptists, of course, that's a general categorization. I believe a lot of them are Southern Baptists, but 29% of Baptists are divorced. That, that's very bothersome. Well, only 21% of atheists and agnostics are divorced. A 
Beloved, this morning we have a frightening crisis. And that frightening crisis is fueled by a fleshly cause. I remind you this morning that all of those things, as far as conflicts are concerned, are fueled by a fleshly reason. James tells us in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask the... Listen, conflict in marriage is a reality. Peter is writing to believers who are married, but there's conflicts in their home, and there's dysfunction in their marriages, and they don't have a right model to follow because their mothers and fathers didn't pass down to them a tradition, a biblical tradition, that's how to have a happy and holy marriage, and a marriage would have God's hand upon it. And so they're, they're fighting amongst themselves, and he writes about husbands and wives who obey not the word of God. Unresolved conflict results in tension, and strain, discomfort, hurt feelings. I remind you this morning, it's a fleshly cause. It's because our flesh gets in the way. Conflict is the aftermath of a strong disagreement or dissatisfaction that goes unresolved. And how many of us this morning, beyond just outside of marriage, how many of us this morning are living a life where there's unresolved conflicts and there's bitterness inside? There's anger inside. And I remind us this morning that bitterness is a root that's inside every single one of us. It's a hidden root, but when it starts to spring up, bitterness that springs up, it's a root that is not only hidden, it's a root that is also harmful in every life and defiling all those around you. Conflict is real. It reminded the story of a man and wife. They were going through a cold war. They were having a fight with each other, and they got to the place where they were giving each other silent treatment, and they were kind of just to that place where they both of them got to let their pride get in the way, and he thought, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be the first one to speak up. She's got to be the first one to speak up. And he, she thought, I'm not going to be the first one to speak up. He's going to be the first one to speak up. And so it kind of went on that way for four or five days there. And finally, the man realizing it was going to the weekend, it was going to Sunday night, and he got home, and he said, you know what, I've got to get up really early in the morning to make the, to attach my flight. I've got a business trip. I've got to take out of, go out of town, but he didn't want to talk to his wife, so he wrote her a little note, and he said, please wake me up at 5 a.m., wrote a little note, put it conspicuously on the bedside where she could see it, there's the note, there says, please wake me up at 5 a.m. Well, the man woke up the next morning, but it was 9 a.m. Obviously, he missed his flight. Obviously, as he woke up, he looked at it, he was irate, he was angered, and he's already fuming because they, they had this cold war going for a few days. And the first thing in his mind was, man, I'm going to let my wife have it. How come she didn't wake me up? I asked, wrote her a note, told her to wake me up at 5 a.m. And as he got out of the bed, he looked on his bed, and there was a note, it's 5 a.m., wake up. <laughs> Conflict is real. Proverbs 17, one says, better is a dry morsel quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifices with strife. You can have an extravagant lifestyle, but there's finding conflicts at home. Solomon said it's better to eat a dry breadcrumb and have quietness in your house than a house full of sacrifices with strife. 
Proverbs 19.13, a foolish son is the calamity of his father and the contentions of a wife are continual dropping. And I just want to, I don't want to hit on the wife as much as I want to hit on both husbands and wives. A content, the contentions of an individual, contentions are just conflicts always arising. We're not going to give in. We're not going to, we're not going to take the high road. So you know what? It doesn't matter. It's not really a big issue. And we're going to hold our ground because we believe we're right about something. And it, what happens, it says here, when it says the contentions of a wife are continual dropping, we are the place in a we just feel like, you know, I'm right, she's wrong, he's right, I'm right, he's wrong, and so I'm not going to be the first to move, and we just keep on belaboring the point, belaboring the point, and we just keep on just knocking on that same situation. Instead of resolving it, we have to prove that we're right. Proverbs 26, 21 says, As coals are to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The reason why most contentions never cease and most strife never ceases is because we're adding fuel back to the fire. Instead of just pouring water on it, we're adding fuel to the fire. Hey, all of us understand this. A conflict is a fire that's raging. A conflict's a fire that you've got a choice. You walk to that conflict and all of us are holding two, two buckets. And one bucket in the right hand is water. That water that's applied to that fire can put it out. But in our left hand, we're holding a bucket that's filled with gasoline. Listen, when you approach that fire of conflict, which bucket are you going to pour in that fire? Right? Say amen. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-five: He that is of a proud heart stirreth up strife. But he that putteth his trust in the Lord shall be made fat. The Bible says in Proverbs 13.10, only by pride cometh contentions. Proverbs 29.22 says, an angry man stirreth of strife, and a fierce man aboundeth in transgression. An angry spouse is always stirring up strife and contentions. A hard to please person, the person who's fault finding, the person nothing's ever picture perfect for them. I love what I'm just saying this morning. Conflicts are real. Conflicts happen. Conflicts occur. Conflicts can lead to bitter and hard feelings towards one another. And though we see this morning the marital risks, I'm thankful today there's a mutual responsibility. Amen? So now we go to 1 Peter chapter 3, and Peter provides for us what the mutual responsibilities are for husbands and wives. You see, when we go back to chapter 2, the midway, Peter is cautiously and carefully addressing believers who are having trouble with their people skills. They didn't have seminars on how to do conflict resolution in those days. They didn't have anger management seminars for people that have anger problems. And by the way, anger management seminars are not going to cure an anger problem. So he writes the holy, blessed word of God that never changes. Amen. And he takes this word and says, I'm going to give you some counsel here. And you'll notice there's counsel twofold this morning. First of all, notice the counsel to the wives. Now, first thing, some man's going to look at this and say, wow. There's seven verses dealing with counsel to husbands and wives. Six are for the women. One is for the husband. There must be something. It must be the wife's fault. <laughs> I want to assure you it's not the wife's fault because Peter didn't want to repeat himself the second time. That's why he starts chapter, chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, ye husbands. But he's dealing with believers who are confused about, I've got conflict with the government. And they did. It was a real conflict. Roman government. Their view of Christianity, persecution, narrow on the throne. 
Many of them got saved. They were saved out of, they were slaves working for a master and they had a hard master. And back in those days, masters, they had no employment laws and there was nothing to protect a slave or servant during those days. And so a slave could go wind up working for a master and be unpaid for several days, be mistreated. And he, he has to address them. He said, well, I know you're going through that and I know you're th- going through suffering. By the way, as you read through First Peter, it addresses you and I as we go through the sufferings of life. And yet we must maintain a holy disposition as we suffer through life. And he talks to them about the fact, well, you still need to have a good attitude and you need to get yourself past re- re- conflicts with your co-workers and with your masters. And then he presents us how our Lord Jesus Christ in the end of chapter 2 endured the greatest of all sufferings when he gave himself and gave his body on the tree for each one of us. He's dealing with the most delicate of all relationships. Marriages. He's dealing with husbands and wives. I tell every couple when I marry them, I always say something like this. I'll tell the husband. Now remember, remember this. Never get in an argument with your wife. Anything you say leads to a new argument. Amen. And when a wife realizes she's in conflict with her husband and she can't change him, it's her goal and desire. Listen, I'm going to just keep harping on this because I've got to change it. There's some things about it that need to be changed. And I think every wife feels that way. There's just some habits or some uh, idiosyncrasies. There's peculiarities about your husband you wish you want to change. It's kind of like, like the young lady that stood at, that was getting some marriage counseling sessions. And the day before the getting married, she stood with the preacher. And the preacher was there with the, with the bridesmaids and her. And she said, the preacher said, Pastor, I'm very nervous. I'm not sure what to do about this marriage. She said, I'm afraid I'm forget what to do. And she says, I, I don't follow cue cards very well. And you can write it out from your three by five card, but I don't know what to do. And she says, I'm not sure. I'm afraid I might say the wrong thing or walk down the wrong place. And he said, listen, listen, I'll make it very easy for you. He said, I'm going to give you three words. So you can understand what you're supposed to do. He says, very, very easy. He says, first of all, when you, when you come out and your father's escorting you, always look down the middle. He says, the first remember is the altar. Just say to yourself, altar. And he looked at her and says, say it with me. Let's say altar. She said, altar. Okay, now you look at that. Now, when you do that, you see the altar. You'll see him standing there. I'll be standing next to him. The groom's next to him. We'll be standing there smiling. He's smiling because he can't wait to receive you. Just remember, altar. And she said, okay, altar. He says, now, when you do that, I want you to look down. It's going to look like a long way. But once you start walking with a bouquet of flowers, just say, aisle. Just say, aisle. She said, aisle. He says, remember that. Second word is aisle. And then as you get there, as you approach him with your father, you'll look at him and just remember as you look at him we're going to sing a song and all you've got to remember is i'll alter him he said when you walk down there just say that to yourself so she got there at the as the marriage sermon was starting and the organ was playing and they were going and she's thinking okay this is really easy i'll and then altar and then i wait for the hymn and so she walks she gets there it's the aisle and then she says it's the altar and she looked at him and she's saying this out loud not realizing how loud she's getting because she's getting some confidence in her heart about what she's saying and if she's getting closer to him you can hear her husband her her husband to be hearing the statement, I'll alter him. I'll alter him. I'll alter him. And he's looking in fear like this as eyes are getting on. He's saying, I'll alter him. I think every wife feels that way. She feels like she wants to alter him. She wants to change the situation. Notice what Peter's advice is to every woman here. You notice he comes out here in verses 1 to 6 and giving you some sound biblical counsel and advice on how, as a wife, you can coexist with your husband, resolve through conflicts and, and, and those types of issues. Notice, first of all, in verse 1, she, he speaks to us about the essential of submission. 
Likewise, ye wives, being subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may also without the word be won by the conversation of the wife. You know, Peter has a sympathetic heart of towards these wives because he understands what they're going through. He understands that there's, there's two extremes that these women are facing. On one extreme, some of them were the first ones saved in their home and their husbands are not saved. And the husband is just giving some resistance and pushback about coming to Jesus Christ as Savior. It might be a husband that doesn't want to give up his drinking. He maybe didn't want to give up his gambling. Maybe he didn't want to give up some life or something he's doing or didn't want to show that he was weak by, by converting to Christianity. And these women got to the place where they were preaching to their husbands and trying to encourage him to get saved, but he wouldn't get saved. On the other extreme is a woman who perhaps that their husband is saved, but he's a very weak believer and he's not growing in the Lord and he's giving her pushback about being in church too often, those types of things there. And so Peter's writing to wives that they face this conflict at home. He, she says, if any obey not the word, he says, he talks about this matter in verse 1 of being in subjection to their own husbands. We spent a lot of time on that last week, but I want to say this this morning. Because as we consider our marriages, God has a perfect will for every marriage. And God's perfect will begins with our attitude, our disposition to our spouse. And as he's writing to the ladies, he says, ladies, be in subjection to the same word, hupatasso, in the Greek as it is for submit. Submit yourselves to your husband's leadership. Be willing to follow your husband. Submission does not mean, as I said last Sunday night, it does not mean that the wife is a slave. It does not mean that she, or imply that she's a second-class citizen or that she's a maid. It does not imply that, uh, that, uh, that, that she has to be a carpet that he rubs his feet on. No, it implies a loving satisfaction to follow the man that God's brought into her life. Submission implies a respect for her husband. Submission implies being peaceable in the marriage. Submission implies being a keeper at home, as, Ty, as Paul instructed Titus. Submission implies loving her husband in spite of his fault. Submission is being that helpmate of filling in those deficiencies in his life and being a helpmate alongside of him, of helping share in his burdens and share in his joys. Submission implies sharing together, recognizing that she is the encourager in the marriage and to help build godly leadership in her husband and realizing as a helpmate, she is the one there to build his leadership and she is the one there to encourage him along the way there. Submission is having a Christ-honoring and godly influence in the home. And by the way, that's what subjection means here in verse 1. It means having a godly influence in the home. The temperament of the home begins with a wife who is in submission to her husband and following him. There's the essential of submission. But he goes on beyond that. He talked about submission in verse 1. But notice in verses 2 through 6, he tells us something else here. He tells us about the essential of sanctification. Now, how can I be submissive to a husband who's overbearing? How can it be submissive to a husband who's very stubborn? How can it be submissive to a husband who's just, he's determined that he's right, I'm wrong, and at every argument we end up by having a war and we don't talk to each other. How do I help my husband? Is it even possible I could change my husband? I've been trying to pray and ask God to change him. I feel like there's nothing changing happen with him. I mean, I don't know how many women feel like that today, but that's probably how these women felt. And would you notice in verses 2 through 6, Peter tells us about the essential or the evidence of satisfaction, of sanctification. Listen to verse 2, 3, and 4. Actually, in verse 1, he says that they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation or the conduct of their wives. 
You're not going to win him by preaching him to death. You're not going to win him over by words, debate, argument, criticism. And by the way, the same applies in the Christian faith. You're not going to win people over by always being critical to them. And he goes on in verse 2 and he says, as he, he's getting back to this matter of sanctification. And by the way, the word sanctification is the same idea as holiness. Chase conversation, he's talking about a holy conduct. While they behold your chaste conversation, notice this, coupled with fear. Whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Now, Peter gives us good counsel for all of us in our lives right now. He's saying first to the sisters, to the ladies, he says, listen, I understand you've got heartache in your heart because you have a husband who's very stubborn and hard. I understand that. And I can imagine Peter writing this, his heart is pouring out to him, is bleeding out for the needs these women are having. But he's saying if you'll listen to what God's word has to say here, God's goal is that you'd win your husband over. In other words, not a home run, but a home one. And he says you want to win over your home and get your home back from the devil. You have to understand it's going to take some time. And that time involves you realizing you're not going to win them over by your, by, your, by your articulation. You're going to win them over by your actions. You're not going to win them over by being critical and condemning. You're going to win them over by your conduct. And so notice in verse 2, he talks about our chaste conversation coupled with fear. You know, he's taking us right back to Proverbs 31 where the discussion is who can find a virtuous woman. Her price is far above rubies. He's not saying she has to be perfect. He's saying, get close to God. As we read verses 2 through 7, the whole emphasis here about husbands and wives, they'd let their spiritual life decline to such a degree that they were trying to solve their problems in the flesh. They were trying to solve their problems through psychology. They were trying to solve their problems by following an ungodly pattern in society. They are trying to solve their problem through sociology. Let me tell you this morning, you're not going to solve your problem through sociology, psychology, or any of those other kind of ologies. The only kind of ology that's going to solve your problem is bibliology. He says, look, ladies, he's talking to ladies in the church now. They've been in church for a little while. You dress up really nice. You're looking beautiful. You come to church. You want to look presentable. And, and, you, and you want to just, you look so well. But he says, listen, you're not going to win your husband over by spending all your time working on the outside. He says, take a little bit of time. Rebalance your life out. Rebalance your life out and work a little bit on the, more on the inside than you are on the outside. By the way, that's good counsel for all of us. Amen. We can look really pretty on the outside coming to church and put on our suits and put on our ties and our nice dresses and we can look really professional. But listen, if inside we're full of dead men's bones, there's something wrong. Notice Peter in verse 4 says something so beautiful. A chaste conversation coupled with fear is working on the hidden man of the heart. And he says the hidden man of the heart is not corruptible. Peter uses the term incorruptible or corruptible quite often in First Peter. Something that doesn't fade away. Something that doesn't decay. 
Something that's living, something that doesn't corrupt is something that's living. By the way, Jesus Christ, he, is, he did not corrupt. Amen. He's even made mention in Psalm 1610, that will not leave my, my soul to corrupt in the grave. It's something that's alive and something that's blooming. And he talked about the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God a great price. Solomon told us in Proverbs 4.25, we're to keep our hearts with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Peter talked about the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit. They testified to us this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ, one of the greatest virtues we have a deficiency of in our lives is the spirit of meekness. I'll ask someone every now and then. I was asking one of our men that I'm training right now. And he said, I said, do you know what a spirit of meekness is? Yeah, pastor, it's humility. And I said, what else? He says, is there anything else? I said, yeah, it's a lot more than humility. Meekness is Moses as he was getting pushback and opposition and being criticized and being murmured against and a rebellion happened against him. Every time that happened to Moses, we find Moses getting on his knees before God with Aaron and crying out for the people of God there saying, God, please deliver these people. Please, God, have mercy. He didn't take it personally. He didn't retaliate. He didn't seek to find vengeance. He didn't seek to take anything. He left the battles in God's hands. And a lot of times our pride gets in the way and we have to, we have to, we react to a situation. We react to a conflict. I mean, we react to criticism and that reaction leads into harsh words or difficult moments. And then all of a sudden we've taken a very sweet situation and made it a very strange situation in our lives. And then we find ourselves this place where what happened? I give you some ideas about this meekness that he's talking about there. Meekness is when instead of being argumentative and complaining, contentious, we seek peace and not war. Meekness is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. When your enemy is against you, that you heap coals of fire upon their head. Meekness is praying instead of arguing. Meekness is responding and not reacting. Meekness is waiting for the right time to say something. Meekness is not letting my pride get in the way. Meekness is avoiding casting blame, judging. Listen, we can always find someone to blame for our problems or something that doesn't fit the picture. Instead of assigning blame, why don't we just take it on the chin and say, Lord, I'm just going to let you work it out. Meekness is accompanied by a quiet spirit. It's being gracious even when you're grieved. Meekness is when you involve your husband and not isolate your husband. Meekness is when you involve your wife and you don't isolate your wife. I'm just saying this morning, Peter's giving some good counsel to the wives here on the matter of sanctification. Sanctification is how we execute and put into action this matter of submission. But go back to verse 1. Notice he tells the wives that there's an eventual success. Likewise, you you wives being subjected to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word, notice, be won by the conversation of the wife. He's saying, listen, if you just follow this counsel I'm giving to you, you make a turn in your disposition and turn in your attitude and let God have control and bear the fruit of the Spirit in your life and be under the control of the Holy Spirit of God in your life and seek to be a peacemaker, not a, not a divisive person. He says, you know, over time, God's going to work in this situation that any who are without the word may be won by the conduct or the conversion. You know what he's saying there? He's saying it's your life, it's your testimony, it's Christ coming out of you that will wind up converting more than your words. Notice verse 7, he gives a counsel for the husbands. 
And by the way, what's Peter's heart here? Peter's heart is not who's right and who's wrong. Whenever we have contention, we're both wrong. Whenever there's strife, we're both wrong. We have to realize we want to be on the same page with our Savior, Jesus Christ, and follow Him. And notice the counsel for the husbands. He continues on the same vein of thought. He says, likewise, ye husbands. Now, the husbands, I can imagine, they were sitting there thinking, yeah, right on, Peter. Come on, Peter, preach it on. Tell my wife like it is. Tell her that's all her problem. Keep on going there. And it's kind of something interesting he talks about. He takes the women back in verses 5 and 6 to Sarah and the Old Testament women. You know, there was a time in Sarah's life that she, well, I have to say this, I don't believe she was completely submissive all the way to Abraham. God had given the promise of the, of the, of the son of, of Isaac to them, and, but uh, Sarah kind of inspired uh, Abraham to get out of the will of God in Genesis chapter 16. And, and we have this matter where she, he, he has a son by Hagar, and, and, he, and Hagar bears a son by the name of Ishmael. And she took matters in their hands, inspired him to do that. And, and at that point of time, she was not calling him her Lord. And then you get to Genesis chapter 18, when the, final, when, when, when the Lord comes for the very final time and reinforcing to them about the promised son. And there, behind the scenes, God hears her laughing, and he says to her, Hey, Sarah, is there anything too hard for the Lord and she's kind of caught by surprise and now she comes out and she calls Abraham Lord and that's referred to here in Genesis in, in first Peter chapter three she called him Lord. she was this place of realizing you know what if God gave my husband a promise and God gave my husband a commandment it's my responsibility just to follow him and trust God just as much as he's trusting God hey ladies sometimes your husband wants to do something for the Lord encourage him to serve Jesus Christ amen encourage your husband to be in church encourage your husband to follow his preacher encourage your husband to read his Bible encourage your husband to pray it doesn't mean he might do it all the time but encourage him along the way there and just say you know what that the best thing for our home and marriage is that we follow that right thing and now the husbands he's writing to the husbands and he says likewise ye husbands he's saying husbands everything i told the wives doesn't exclude you you still got to work on your heart man you still got to realize that maybe your heart that's hardened and maybe your heart that's bitter and you've got to work on your heart the hidden man of the heart hey there's some men in the room some of us men need some meekness and quietness in our lives too amen He says, likewise, ye husbands. As we read verse 7, he's telling you husbands, have a home where there's dignity and respect. He says, dwell with them according to knowledge. Sometimes husbands can be so busy going here and going there, doing this and doing that. You're not home. Men, are you home? Do you just come home to sleep and come home to eat, or do you, are you home? Are you seen as a stranger, or are you seen as the father and the husband of the home? Dwell with them. Live with them. You know, sometimes we strike ourselves, and I don't know about today for a lot of you, but there was a day when I grew up that there was a day where men would go out. Thursday night would be their bowling night, and Monday night would be their guys' night. And you kind of wonder with everything going on, they'd run in and grab a quick bite to eat with their wife, and they'd be back out the door again. Hey, listen, be careful. We're to dwell with our wives. We're to be at home, men, with our wives. They need to know that we're there. Why? Because there's a security that a wife needs to have in knowing that her husband is at home with her. And by the way, when our careers are before Christ, and our jobs are before Jesus, and money before the Master, then something's out of balance do all of them according to knowledge 
Man, I'm going to tell you, testify to you, you're not going to know everything you need to know about your wife. God appointed that during your entire married life, you're dwelling with her according to life. You're learning about your wife. She's unraveling a piece at a time and a day at a time. And you're learning everything you need to know about your wife. But the Bible commands us as men, we're to dwell with them according to knowledge. And you've got to know her peak times and you've got to know her low times. You've got to know what makes her excited and what doesn't get her excited. You've got to know what she likes to eat and what she doesn't like to eat. I like spicy foods, but I have to be careful. When I'm with my wife, she likes spicy foods, but not the same extent as I do. The kind of spicy foods I eat, you've got to use a fire extinguisher to put it out. Amen? <laughs> Not exactly what my wife needs. Amen? My wife loves orchids. I tell people when I go door knocking, I want you to meet my wife. They say, why? She is the orchid queen. Amen? She can take a dead orchid and bring it back alive. I saw a lady the other day, uh, yesterday was taking, took, took Brother Ted so winning, and we passed her home in the garage, and I looked inside, and, and if I wasn't married to my wife, I probably wouldn't have paid attention, but I looked in the garage, and this woman had rows of orchids. I said, man, my wife needs to meet this lady, amen? If she wants to stop and see some orchids, I'm going to dwell with her according to knowledge. Listen to me, man. Verse 7 says, we're to know our wife. Listen, guys, you're, you're not going to like this. You're going to hate me. I'm going to get all the bad letters later on. Amen. I'm changing my phone number so you can't text me. Amen. I'm not answering my email. But that one verse, that one thought there says, we're to know our wives better than we know our hobbies. Then he says, giving honor to the wife is unto the weaker vessel. Doesn't mean you're superior to her. It means that physically, biologically, she's different than you. She's wired different than you and I, guys. And he says in verse 7, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Now here's the hard part. That means even if she's wrong, you think you're right, you're to give honor to her as the weaker vessel. Wow. Give me honor means when you have disagreements, you don't allow grudges and grievances and anger and bitterness to cause the rift to further. It means that men are not to take advantage of wives. By the way, it means that men are not to bully or intimidate or disrespect their wives. Give me honor means to speak well of her. Give me honor means to remember her special days. Give me honor means to acknowledge her gifts and her talents, speaking well about her. It ought to be said that people around you know that you've got some good things you say about your spouse. They can come back and say, man, your husband or your wife says some really great things about you. Guys, it doesn't matter if you're married 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Giving honor to your wife means you can still be romantic as you were in your first year. Giving honor means you're, you're giving and not just taking from the relationship. Remember what I said last week? I said part of our, 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 our dynamics in marriage is we've got to treat our marriages like a savings account. We've got to be certain that we're putting more in than we're taking out of the marriage. Amen? 
And as we take things out, listen, let's be sure we're trying to replenish that over and over again. I'm just saying today, he gives us counsel to the husbands. He gives us counsel to the wives. We see this morning a marital responsibility. Notice in verse 7 again, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel. But notice something else as we close this morning. He tells us about the marital risks, and he tells us about the mutual responsibilities. But as we close this morning, let's bring it all together, and let's see some motivational reminders. Number one, would you notice in verse seven, there is the equal standing. Listen, the husband's not above the wife. The wife's not above the husband in the sense of their standing. Notice what the Bible says. If we're saved and know Jesus Christ as Savior, he calls us as heirs together of the grace of life. Hey, bless God, we have an equal standing. The same blood that was shed on the cross for the man is the same blood that was shed on the cross for the woman. Amen. The same Jesus died on the cross for me is the same Jesus died on the cross for my precious wife. I'm going to tell you today, God doesn't elevate you in salvation above your spouse. You have an equal standing before Jesus Christ. We are joint heirs together of the grace of life. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. Teaching us to denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. That's God's grace at work. Grace work, the work of grace doesn't stop at salvation. Listen, the work of grace encourages in our service, and the work of grace strengthens us when we have trial, and the work of grace sustains us if we go along life's way. Hey, listen, as they sang about this morning, we've got to continue in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Equal standing. Sir, if you have an attitude, well, I'm, I'm supposed to be leader at home. My wife has to follow me. I'm going to remind you today, you have an equal standing. She can't follow you if you're not the right kind of a leader. As unto the Lord. I'm not advocating she, devo- she, she, she has to rebel against you and all that. But I'm saying it's very difficult for a woman to follow if you've got that kind of attitude. Listen, equal standing means we have the same Jesus in us. Amen. Equal standing means we have the same Holy Spirit indwelling us. Listen, an equal standing reminds us today we can still bear the fruit of the Spirit in our own marriage. We have the same Bible, the same promise, the same command. Hey, together you seek the Lord. Together you grow closer to Jesus Christ. Together you serve the Lord together. We have an equal standing. Notice he talks about the exercise of supplication. Don't miss this. This is the best part. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. Notice that your prayers be not hindered. Listen, the essence of marriage, please understand this, married couples. The greatest power on planet Earth is a husband and wife whose hearts are knit together and living for Christ and love the Lord. When they get on their knees and open their Bible, when they pray together, listen, when they're in harmony with one another, it's where that promise is where two or more are gathered in my name. There am I in the midst of I'm going to tell you today, you'll see some great answers to prayer when you are married to a wife or to a husband that seeks God together with you. Don't wait until a catastrophe or crisis comes to your life. Decide, I'm going to get right with my spouse so we can pray together. You're a little bit too late. Peter's telling every husband in verse 7 that your prayers be not hindered. Hey, you, if you want to know why there's been a dry spell in your praying, that might be the answer right there. It might be why a belligerent child is not turning it might be why the power is not there. It might be why your devotions are dry. 
The exercise of supplication. Hindered prayers are prayers God will not answer. Unresolved conflict puts a rift between us and we can't see God answer prayer. Hey, I want to encourage you, if you did nothing else this morning, let's turn to our spouse and hold our spouse by the hand and look at our spouse and say, I love you and say, listen, let's not let our, let's not our petty differences divide and keep us from answering our prayer. Hey, let's decide we're going to have a marriage that's dynamic, not only relationship, but we're going to have a marriage that's dynamic in our request and we want to be able to go before God day and night knowing that we can approach our Father in heaven and knowing that it's not just an Elijah that gets answers to prayer. It's a husband and wife that are right with each other and can get answers to prayer in their lives. Notice the embracement of salvation. Marriage is a beautiful picture of Jesus' love for the church. Amen? Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. We go on visitation and go so many. We all tell people something like this. Everybody needs one of three good homes, right? The first home everybody needs is you need a good home that you go home to. You need to have a happy marriage and a good marriage. You need a good home. And bless God, when you're saved, you know Christ is Savior. You're walking right with God and you love your spouse. You can have a good home. Listen, everybody needs a good, need a good home that you go to. But everybody needs a good church home. I want to declare to you this morning, I believe Heritage Baptist Church is a good church home. It's a good place for you to come and... I told a man last yesterday, we went to the hospital, one of our members said, Pastor, would you go visit my husband's friend? He had, he had a, he's got cancer and it's very, very, it's very, 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 very serious. And I said, okay, let's get it, start praying for him. And I said, I'll try to get there on Saturday. And after he gets into recovery, went to see the man. And long story short, got to see him. And he told me marvelously how God had just worked in his life there. And I said, you know what? I didn't come today to see you, to take something from you. I came to give something to you. Amen. And I started out by telling about everybody needs one of three good homes. And I said, you know, bless God, you've got a good family home. I, and I, I said, listen, sir, when you get out of this hospital, I'd like you to consider making Heritage Baptist Church your church home. I'd like to earn the privilege of being your pastor. But I said, it's not enough that you have a good church home. It's not enough that you have a good family home. It's important that you have, that you make sure that heaven's your home. And I said, sir, what's the most important today while you're in this hospital? It's important for you to know that God loves you and Jesus died for your sins and you can be saved for your sins today. Listen, as I gave the gospel that man, God was working for 35 minutes. There were no interruptions, no nurses coming in. In fact, the man that was there with him just somehow mysteriously just got up and walked out of the room when I came in. There was nobody there for 35 minutes. My so many partner and I were giving the gospel this man. And I turned to him and called him by his first name and I held him by the hand like this, Brother Russ. And I said, sir, you know that Jesus loves you and God died for your sin. Do you see any reason today why Jesus Christ should not be your Savior? And he said, Pastor Fong, I don't see any reason. Can I get saved right now? He prayed and asked Christ to save him. And he stopped midway through the prayer. And the by so when he partnered, kind of took a picture. The man was sobbing through his praying. I turned to him after he prayed. I said, sir, what, what did you ask the Lord to do for you? I'm not kidding you here. I got a picture of it. Big, big tears are coming down the side of his face. I said, I told God I was a sinner and I need to get saved. I told him I wanted the free gift of eternal life. I said, I want to be a son of God. He said, I told him I confess today that Jesus died for my sins and rose to the dead. I said, praise God, you're saved today. You see, the third home, the most important of all the homes you have to have, you need to make sure that heaven's your home. Notice as we close this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. 
Go over, go back one chapter and notice what the Bible says here in verses five and six in chapter two. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices, except to God by Jesus Christ. Be, wherefore, also it's contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believe on him shall not be confounded. Here's what I'm saying as I close this morning. The most important thing for you to do is make sure heaven's your home. And you can do that by believing on Jesus Christ, by calling upon him by faith, by saying, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I'm not sure. I'm 100% sure I'm saved, but I want to be sure I'm saved. I want to be certain I'm going to heaven. I want to be like that man in the hospital who'd been religious, but he had not been regenerated. The man who realized he had to be born again. And I'm encouraging you this morning that you realize today that you need to be born again, except a man be born again. He cannot enter to the kingdom of God. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved this morning. And you can do all the things we said in 1 Peter 3, but if you don't have Jesus Christ in your heart, you're missing the most important ingredient you need in your home. You need Jesus in your home. And to get Jesus in your home, you've got to get Jesus right here in your heart. Amen? Is there conflict? Is there heartache? Peter gives a sound counsel for husbands and wives. Did you do something special for me today? Not for me, for the Lord and for yourself. Isaiah chapter 38, if you have the notes there, I'm not going to ask you to turn to it. But I put in your notes, and I didn't have time to read it this morning. But Isaiah chapter 38, verse 1, Hezekiah was 39 years of age. Now, to me, 39 is pretty young, amen? Hezekiah got diagnosed with a terminal illness. I believe he had cancer of some kind. In fact, the more I get into the scriptures and understand diseases, he may have had a sarcoma type of cancer. And the prophet Isaiah came to him, he said, he said to him, Hezekiah, set thine house in order. Would you do something with me today? With me. With me. Would you humble your hearts this morning and say, Lord, I just want to take a moment to come so you can help me set my house in order. Time is short. Bob and Sally, in two more years, will be married 50 years. It goes by very quickly. Time is short. Would you humble yourself today? And find your place at the altar with me and say, Lord, I'm just humble my heart today to set my house in order. Secondly, would you make the foundation of your life so that you have a good home? Jesus Christ. If you're not saved, we invite you this morning to call on Jesus to save you, to wash away your sins, and make you a child of God. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, thank you this morning for loving us, and thank you, Lord, for just the wonderful counsel from 1 Peter 3 on how to have order in the house. Instead of asking for hands to go up, I pray for every married couple this morning, every married couple. Every marriage represented here, whether they're here together or they're maybe just one spouse is here. I pray for special grace and humility. To take back from our homes whatever Satan's taken away. Whatever divisiveness and contention that's gotten in the way to take it back. Equip and enable husbands to be the leaders of their homes, to dwell with their wives according to knowledge. Give you honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Help every, every wife for this morning to bear a chaste conversation through the hidden man of the heart. Through a spirit of meekness and quietness, which is in the sight of God of great price. And help us realize that's it right there. There is the solution. There is the Bible counsel we need to get there.
And then this morning, I pray for some who are not saved, who may not know Christ as their Savior. They'd realize the turning point for their life begins by accepting Christ as their personal Savior. So we give the invitation this morning, help folks to respond. I ask now, Lord, you'd have your way. Holy Spirit, you've spoken through your word. Now, Lord, help us to respond to you. We pray for this in Jesus' name. The pianist is going to play. I'm going to ask that you stand with me. Heads bowed and eyes closed. But if you need to come this morning, and the word come means to come forward, I invite you to come this morning. Married couples, would you come today? Leaders, would you take the lead to help encourage our church? Would you take the lead with your spouse and come and join us today to pray for your homes and your marriage? Teachers, would you do that today? There's room at the cross. Would you take some time to pray for your marriage? Come on, let's do that. There's content and strife. It's all flesh. It's all flesh. Many have come. Would you come? Don't hold out. Let's take a time and pray over our marriages. Thank you for coming. Would you come today? Come out of your own free heart. Would you come? Satan is a divider. House divided shall not stand. Would you come this morning? Our marriages are very delicate relationships. Listen, it might mean the reason why our prayers are not being answered may be because there's something going on that needs God's help and God's remedy. Would you come this morning? And when married couples are coming and you say, well, my marriage is good. I know it's good, but tomorrow the devil is going to hit you with some fiery darts. I think I'd come just to get my shield of faith a little bit more strengthened today. Amen. Come this morning. Then today, are you saved? If you died right now, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? Christ loves you. Christ died for your sin. I invite you this morning to come to Christ. We've got altar workers here around the room, whether you're a man or woman, boy or girl. You come and take an altar worker by the hand and say, I'm not sure I'm saved, but I want to know for sure how to be saved so I can go to heaven. Would you come? Would you come? Come. There's room at the cross. We'll sing another stanza. Please come. Don't wait. Time is going by very quickly. Father, thank you that there's always room at the cross. <coughs> it never gets too full. It never gets overcrowded. And overflowing there at the cross is the love of God through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray for sinners this morning that get saved. I pray that you'd honor every prayer that's been lifted up for homes and marriages today, that you'd be honored and exalted to those, those prayers. Father, help us, especially as men, to take the admonition, 1 Peter 3, 7, to dwell with our wives according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together the grace of life, that our prayers be not hindered. Father, would you be honored through these commitments that have been made during this, this day. We pray that you'll be glorified and honored. Thank you for folks who've come to church today. Lord, we pray that a spirit of worship has grasped our heart and helped us to realize how great you are for our lives. Father, dismiss us your blessing. Give rest this afternoon. I pray that all of our folks will be back in church tonight for the wonderful service we'll have. And we commit all these things to you. Thank you, Father, today in Jesus' name. Amen.